Welcome everyone back to LA Not So Confidential. I am Dr. Shiloh. And of course, I'm here joined by the one and only Dr. Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It is good to have everyone in the room again and or will have us in the room again, wherever you are in your car. In your, in your laundry car room. room. <laughs> your la- I want a laundry room. That's like a dream, you know, have a laundry room instead of my laundry garage. It's so hot. Hey, you know what? I'm just, I'm relieved after years of living in Los Angeles and in, especially and in Chicago was even worse having a unit, a washer dryer in the apartment here. Yeah. Because back in the day, especially in Tell Chicago. Us. Tell oh, us, was, Uncle Scott. It was <laughs> so bad in Chicago would be the middle of winter. Like it would be, you know, 20 below. And I'd be like filling up a duffel bag and putting on wellies and like trudging down oh. like eight blocks. Oh, it wasn't even in your building. So oh no. It was a laundromat. Got <laughs> no, it. no, 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 no. Yeah. I was picturing like a creepy basement laundromat, like, like in Mindhunter, remember the yes. second season and the cats and the hole yeah. in the wall? <laughs> there's one, there's also like a great terrifying apartment building, laundry room, basement in the first few scenes of Rosemary's Baby. Like, oh, oh. it is like, oh yeah, I don't ever want to go in the basement again. Okay. No. Anyway. No. Hey, so hey, what are you watching or listening to these days? I know you up and left me. I went to Disneyland yesterday, but <laughs> I did. It was great. It was really, really great. It was exhausting. I do not have my Disney legs in the way that I used to, but we right. we knocked a lot of stuff out, had some great meals and and hung out. It was really oh, cool. Fun. What am I watching? I uh, just finished watching Sophie on Netflix. It is a short, I think, four or five episode documentary about the brutal, brutal murder of a French national who was living for an extended period in a remote village in Ireland called Skull. And it's very clear who the murderer is. And it's really pretty much a travesty of justice that the murderer is never brought to justice. But I highly recommend people watch it. It's very easy to watch. The French accents are great. There's good subtitles. I mean, it's not one of those that you can scroll through Facebook while you're watching because you really do have to read the subtitles. And it's heartbreaking. Like they interview her adult son and her elderly parents. And this woman was just incredibly loved and had some real challenges in her life. And basically the the village weirdo killed her. And there just wasn't enough evidence. I haven't even heard of it. Yeah, wow. it just popped up on my feed. I'm so that's what I'm watching when I'm listening to was recommended by you. And I cannot believe I did not have this FBI, this form, this retired FBI agents podcast. She's got like over 200 episodes. And yeah, Jerry it's, Williams. Jerry, it's really interesting. Yeah, she has some great people on some great topics. Um, and yeah, I got introduced to her through uh, dialogue. Rebecca Sebastian interviewed wow. her and it was great. So yeah, very cool. Um, I just finished today the season finale of Bosch, or not season, the whole series finale. It's now over. Bosch is on Amazon Prime. It's based on Michael Connelly's books. And it's just, I, I, you're probably so sick of falling over them every time they're filming outside of your building. 
and you're probably happy that they're done. <laughs> First of all, let me say, I love that lead actor. I can't remember what his name is. but Titus Welliver. Titus Welliver. I think he's so interesting. I've never seen the show and I hear it's great. And there are people who are rabid, rabid fans. So I'm oh, yeah. sure it's good. And it's what, is it like seven seasons or something? Seven. Yes. Okay. Yes. And let me, but let me be very clear. I am so relieved to see filming all over downtown LA. Same. Because it means our economy is back. It's a, it puts, I mean, I look out the window from my sixth floor office and all I see is employment. Like yep. they've got actors, extras, gaffers, grips, director, like a couple yeah. hundred people at a time. All and the trailers. All the, all the trailers, the support services. The only thing that gripes my bottom. Uh-huh. <laughs> is like, look, we all park in the same parking structure. You know, yeah. you don't, it's not like you suddenly turned into this parking structure and now you're driving through a, a hailstorm in Minnesota. It's just a fucking parking deck. You keep going, you find a parking space, you pull your little jalopy in and let me get by <laughs> because I'm running 10 minutes late because I stopped at Starbucks and I need to get out to the office. <laughs> Because you sat in your car and you listened to the rest of a podcast. Yeah, before you and left. would you just please hurry it up? <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's they're the, just strolling onto the set. <laughs> yeah, so that's really the only thing that pisses me off. So if that's it, I can, uh, I sh I'll deal. Yeah, Bosch is great because just like his books, uh, Los Angeles is just such a character in and of itself. And every location, I'm like, oh, I was there yesterday. Oh, I can see that from my window. Like, that's just. We always talk about that here. Like, that's fun just yeah. to have that. It's very cool. Um, many locations that we went to on our walking tour, Angel's Flight and all that financial district, Grand Park, all of that stuff. So, yeah. but as far as what I'm listening to, I specifically wanted to talk about this podcast that I stumbled upon. Also completely LA centric is the Los Velas Murder Mansion podcast. So it's called Los Velas Murder Mansion podcast. And this filmmaker started out doing research on the famous murder mansion up in the Los Feliz area, that big, beautiful Spanish California style mansion where Dr. Pearlson in the late fifties murdered his wife, attempted to murder his daughter, and then died by suicide himself while his other children were sleeping December around Christmas time. You've heard all of the urban legends, I'm sure of the Christmas decorations still being up and people breaking in and people sneaking up to grab a peek because basically it sat vacant for decades. So yeah, the, the pictures that photographers have taken just through the windows oh, yeah. are really creepy. Like it is frozen in time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those local lore sort of true crime locations here and this old, beautiful, you know, 1902 home is just on our vintage LA radar here. But so this woman did this podcast. She originally started out going to make a film, a documentary about it and did the most fantastic research about it from the time the home was built, tracked down every single owner, got all of their history. It's just the most perfect, succinct, yet deep dive podcast I've ever heard if that makes any sense, it's just like every episode is the perfect length. It goes just deep that you want to hear and it's great. And I'm going to try and get her on our get vocal and see if she wants to come talk about it. I think that's a great idea. It fits, fits well with our 
LA noir crime history here. So everybody, please listen to it. It's fantastic. It's only seven episodes or so, but it'll give you that California vibe. So that's what we're listening to watching. I do really need to catch up on our Patreon shout outs, which we usually do on our Get Vocal, but we did not do them the entire month of June because Scott was gone. And then for our other episode, we just had to jump in right away. The last one we did on Stolen Valor with all of our guests. So let's just do it here on the regular episode feed. That's um, right. So it's so preserved here for posterity. There you go. So for June, we are so happy and grateful for each and every one of you. We have Kaylin Z, Jessica W, Sarah D, Mary W, Amelia T, Cece, and Melissa C. And, and I, that's great. And I wanted to give just my thanks again, which I sound so corny and maudlin when I say this, but I'm, I'm just continually blown away that people like offer us this kind of patronage. Support. It's awesome. Yeah. It really actually helps us not have to tap into our salaried money just to be able to keep things going. We, by, by doing this, we're able to buy better microphones and we're able to hire someone to sweeten our sound and actually, you know, help support us going to conferences where we can meet you guys. Sure. So we really appreciate it. And then I also wanted to send a special shout out to someone who made my ears burn in the last week, Michaela V. I hope you're doing well. I know you through Dr. Mike S. He is a great guy, a colleague of mine, uh, a former colleague of mine at my day job. And uh, Michaela had was having a conversation with Dr. Mike and she mentioned, Hey, do you know this podcast? I really like it. <laughs> and he was like, of course That's I know awesome. this podcast. My buddy does it. So thank you for cool. listening. Thank all of you for listening. We're just really happy to have you. And she's a psych student. Yes. Yes. Awesome. So that's, awesome. I mean, that's another big thing. We've talked about it before too. We've got professors emailing us, telling us they're, they're assigning extra credit to listen yeah. to the podcast. So I love that so yeah. much. Some not even extra credit. Some it's part of the curriculum. <laughs> My buddy back in New Jersey, he he puts it in his curriculum. So that's awesome. I know. So crazy. Who knew, right? All righty. So let's get into our episode today. Yes. So you know me, I come up with an episode and kind of go off of a title sometimes because <laughs> I think it sounds interesting. I want to revisit it. And then, you know, a couple of weeks go by and I'm like, holy crap, I can't find any research on this. <laughs> I'm painted into a corner now. I promise Scott, this is what we're doing. But I think it's an interesting story to hear why there isn't research on this. We are going to talk about spree killer couples. I thought about changing the title to just spree killers because of the, the tiny amount of actual real evidence-based research. But we're going to keep it the same because our case studies, we are going to talk about couples and what we know about them. And then our case studies are also going to be on spree killer couples. So we have brought it full circle for everyone. We're going to do a large overview first of spree killers, but then focus on the spree killer couples. And what I mean by that is we're going to focus on the romantically linked couples rather than like a DC sniper situation or where it's maybe two men. Um, romantically linked or not, but we're, we're going to break it down. So it's not just like a gang of offenders together. We really want to get into the heart of the romantic link there in the research. I have found that it's also now referred to as rapid sequence homicide offenders. So I'm starting to see that lingo 
even though it's very preliminary because like I said, there is very little here. So this probably already evokes some images of Bonnie and Clyde for you guys. Dr. Scott's going to give us a good deep dive at that historical case. And we are going to explore the prevalence and the psychology behind these killing duos. So yeah, this, this was a bitch to research, but I prevailed as far as trigger warnings. I mean, multi-side random acts of violence, uh, the, the title kind of says it all. There's nothing really beyond that, except Scott, anything in your research that you wanted to add to any trigger warning? You said, are you going to mention some of the sexual assault in prison? Yeah, so definitely just going to mention some, basically some issues around the earlier rape of one of our perpetrators while he was incarcerated. But I won't, we won't be going deeply into that the way some documentaries are doing now, but we will, as we're posting our links and our resources I've found several very good, well-formulated documentaries that I'll touch on, but I encourage people to watch if you're interested in this. Great. So let's start where my brain likes to start with this as a nice definition. And not that this has changed over time, but the use of it has changed, I guess I could say. The definition comes from Dr. Catherine Ramslin, and the definition is, quote, a spree killing involves a string of at least three murders in several locations arising from a key precipitating incident that continues to fuel the motivation to kill. The murders occur fairly close in time, but the time frame lasts significantly longer than that of a mass murder, and the locations are further apart. The victims can be targeted or random. So this should give us a good idea of killings happening basically in close succession to each other with essentially the killer or killers on the run in between. Like we see in media and entertainment and when this is depicted, a big part of it is them on the run and what we picture like law enforcement pursuing them and trying to stop them before the next killing. And speaking of the media, the news media tends to use a lot of these terms interchangeably. So sometimes it's hard to decipher between what is exactly, uh, what category does a school shooter fall into? Um, a rampage shooter, you might hear that. And that's sort of the combination between spree and mass shooting. So if they have a mass shooting here and then they leave and they go another location, there's more than one person killed here. It could be a combination, but you have all of those as well as serial killer, right? So we have different definitions for those two. If you look closely, there's going to be some overlap really in the big three serial, which is the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events, mass murdering four or more persons during an event that has no cooling off period. And then lastly, spree. So yes, there will be overlap, but you always want to pick the best category for the person and it's very interesting because in 2005, when the FBI hosted this symposium on serial killing, they actually came to a consensus to drop the term spree killer from any of the vernacular that they were using in law enforcement or for statistic, statistical purposes, because they really said, okay, look, we've codified the definition of serial killer, but there's no real practical place in the lingo or in our jobs for spree killer. But after doing the research for this, I disagree. I 
I... Wait, I'm I'm confused then. So okay. I, thank you. I, I just want to further explanation because I thought it was really cool in listening to the podcast, watch the documentaries and doing the research that they had given such a definitive definition for spree killing. But are you saying that that spree killing definition that you gave earlier was pre-2005? No, it was after. This is very, very recent. Okay. So in 2005, you're saying the FBI is going, no, 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 we don't need that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to use that term. And then Catherine Ramslin, who is a badass, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) they felt like they had to further parse out this particular subgenre, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, 2005 is when they do away with it. And then very recently, right before the pandemic, Dr. Ramslin and retired FBI agent Mark Safrik write this wonderful book and conduct this analysis that I'm going to talk about a lot today. It's called Spree Killers, Practical Classifications for Law Enforcement and Criminology. And that's when they're like, nope, this actually has to be a thing, has to have its own definition. We need to start studying it that way. And it's pretty evident once we get into this that really psychologically, it makes sense because we're talking about different motivations. I think Mark Safrick's looking at it from a law enforcement perspective, obviously of like, can we interrupt some of these crimes if we understand them better, especially if it's a spree, right? You know, kind of like they want to do with serial killings. But as we'll see, some type of spree killings are actually more predictive. So that's the beauty in it. So I'm so glad that they revisited this again. There's also another definition that comes from James Allen Fox. He's an expert on serial killers from Northwestern University. And he just had a nice description, I thought, that kind of fit the bill too. He said that spree killers are a type of serial killer who are involved on a full-time basis in their killings and in running from the law. So with that, let's get into this analysis that Mark Safrick and Catherine Ramslin did. They analyze cases from all over the world. They have over 300 cases in their study, 419 killers, spread out among 43 countries. So they took this completely worldwide, every spree killing case that they could get their hands on and broke them down. There weren't even categories or typologies yet until they analyzed all of these cases. Hey, offhand, do you know what the, and I'm, cause I, I am not familiar with this book at all. So thank you for, for jumping on that. What's the time span? Like what's the earliest example worldwide they were able to find? Great question. So I saw a case as early as 1950 in here. And this came out a year ago. Wow. So all the way up to them. They developed typologies, five of them, and some of them have some subcategories to them. So I'm going to go through those, talk about what they are, the differences, and then we're going to explore them a little bit further after we do some case studies. Like I said, there can be overlap even within these categories themselves, but usually one category fits better, and that's that's what they're going by. The first category is the anger revenge category, and this was actually the biggest category with 30% of their cases fitting here. So these are the people where anger and revenge are the motives. They have their hit list. Law enforcement can be very proactive in these cases. Unfortunately, it might be after 
one person or there is some action taken to start killing people on this hit list because you need some indicator at the top unless you just find somebody's list but you know usually there is there is a killing or two where then the dots can start to be connected and there's many more people on the list in which law enforcement can then intercept the perpetrator and save some lives so it's the biggest subsection however it's also the one where law enforcement can be the most proactive preventing other killings. Now, in anger and revenge, they break it down into three little subsections. One is targeted. And so this is where the perpetrator is, they know who they're going to kill. They got that list. They are not going to deviate from it. And they're just going to boom, go down straight through there. Now, do things always go as planned like that? No. Of course not. <laughs> so there's going to be some other cases that don't fit so neat and clean into a targeted list. The next one is target opportunistic. So this is where they may start with specific individuals whom they have a grievance against, or there's some anger or revenge issues with, but then they kill someone else, maybe for a different means, like now they need money. Now they need a car. They need to escape. And this person is in their way. So there's sort of this mixed person that gets in the way. So now they have, have killed both the targeted individual as well as somebody where it was just an opportunity. And then there's the opportunistic random case. So this person has a grievance and they are seeking revenge or they're angry and people are just sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, this, this plan isn't going very well. And all of a sudden they're deciding to take their anger out on whomever is in front of them rather than being too specific about an individual. For Mark Safrick and Dr. Ramslin, the case that really got them thinking about examining spree killers is the Scottsdale shootings from 2018. And Scott, I know you'll probably remember this because this is when forensic psychiatrist Stephen Pitt was shot outside of his office. He was the very first victim. And after that, two paralegals at a law office were then killed at a separate location. Valera Sharp and Laura Anderson were the victims in that case. And then very close in time to that at third location, a psychologist named Marshall Levine was killed. And it really took a family member involved in what had been going on with this perpetrator's background to say, wait a minute, I think that someone is responsible because all of these businesses are linked, not necessarily the people who are killed, but this forensic psychologist had a piece in one of his court proceedings these therapists were working with the family and so on and so on. And it turns out that 56-year-old Dwight Lamont James ends up getting on the radar of law enforcement because his ex-wife's new husband, who was a retired cop, says, I think this is the guy you're looking for. Wow. Even though it wasn't the, the exact professionals per se that were working on his case. So law enforcement ends up intercepting him, surveilling him, and he dies by suicide, but they find out that he had many more people on his hit list. Wow. So yeah, uh, that's so this interesting. Was... I would not have thought of this as being a spree. Why is that? It just seems so organized. 
Oh, okay. So, but, but that's, I mean, that's good for me to understand the, the definition more clearly. So, and, and I think that helps us look at these different categories, because if in your head, you were like spree feels just kind of willy nilly, you know, that's uh, exactly what I meant. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's really just different locations. You're going and committing these killings, different places, um, but quite close in time to each other. So okay. anger, revenge, that's our first one. The second category that we have are the mission oriented spree killers. And this was only about 8% of the cases that they looked at. And I think mission, I think, okay, this sounds kind of similar to anger, revenge, or on a mission, they have a list. But this means more that the offender thinks that they have a noble cause. This could be a hate crime. This could be an act of terrorism. This could be incel ideology. So in this category, they actually break up. They have two subcategories, psychotic and non-psychotic, which you might be saying, does that make sense also? Well, it, it certainly could. There are people who are mission-oriented that can have false beliefs to where it's more of a delusional disorder. Uh, actually, schizophrenia is the most common diagnosis they found within this subcategory. So maybe it's what I need to sacrifice people to stop the end of the world. And the killing is part of this false belief. Or maybe there's a command auditory hallucination that's going along with this where voices are telling them to do these things for certain reasons. So once you look at it that way, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Someone who is non-psychotic, mission-oriented, doesn't have the, the psychosis or the delusion. Their mission is really clearly articulated. Perhaps they don't have some of those mental health diagnoses that would be associated with psychoticism. But this could be like your Alec Manassian in Toronto. Yes, that is, great example. That is killing people in the name of his incel ideology, his true believer mindset. Or also I think of Andres Brevik in Oslo. His was very politically motivated. It was when I think of a mission, I definitely think of him. He set so off so organized. Oh, oh so the, organized. The distractionary bomb set off and everything. Yeah. Set off the bomb in downtown Oslo, killed eight people there, which was actually supposed to be a distraction before his journey across to this island where he actually went to go murder all of these children who were essentially at a camp that was sponsored by some of the parties that more were more left-leaning, left-leaning, and he was very right-wing. And they were kids that were interested in the beliefs of this left-leaning party. And he went over there dressed as a police officer and just murdered dozens and dozens of people. So you can say this is sort of two mass killings, the bombing and then the shooting, the mass shooting. But if you look at it together, it counts as a spree killing. Mission oriented. Then I we would, have I love I did want to go back and, and emphasize yeah. the percentage that you were talking about. So in this particular subcategory, it's eight percent as opposed to thirty percent. That's a huge difference. Oh yeah. In the number. And I think it is a great indicator that we always want to bring around that. Psychosis and schizophrenia 
does not indicate more likelihood for violence at all in any way, shape, or form. It's a very, very low percentage of individuals who are on the psychotic spectrum that actually act out in these violent ways. So that, right. that dovetails really well with the known stats on psychosis. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at only one to 2% of the population would even be diagnosed with schizophrenia. And that's a very small amount that would be acting out violently. And then to this degree, for sure. The next category is desperation. And this is also at 8%. And even though we know that people don't snap, (laughs) is that right, Scott? There's, yeah, there's never a snap. There's always an evolution. Definitely. This is a group that might feel closest to that. Uh, They really feel like they have nothing to lose because they're at a point which there was a pathway that they got to that point. There is stuff going on. Um, They're often quite suicidal. And you and I have talked about how there is such a significant overlap with suicidal ideation and homicidal ideation. And a lot of those symptoms are very similar or the person can feel both of those things when they are really at the end and feeling the most desperate. This is a desperation category, Um, feeling like there's no other way out, like they are very hopeless. So this group is quite unpredictable. They basically feel like they have to just keep going until they're stopped or they're trapped. And they are simply killing to get a means to continue to stay on the run. So this is cars, money, shelter, eliminating those who might be witnesses along the way. This is a really, I could see this as following an impulsive act or crime at the beginning. Like maybe there was something impulsive that happened and now they have zero planning about what to do or how not to get caught. And it just snowballs without any rhyme or reason to it. And then interestingly, we have a category of mental illness. So this is what they decided to put as a category for this group that actually made up 12% of the cases that they looked at. Again, they broke it down that it could be psychotic or non-psychotic. And they found that this group had a very high rate of dying by suicide at the end of their spree, 30% of them, a third of them were taking their own lives or had a suicide by cop type situation. So there is, again, no clear mission here. And to separate them out from the mission oriented group that we did see psychosis with as well, this group can have psychosis, but there is no clear mission to what's going on. The spree killing is again, very reactive and is linked to some diagnosable and or historical record of mental illness on board with these folks. And then we get to our last category, which is the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about today and what we're going to focus on. And this category accounts for 22% of the cases that uh, Safrik and Ramsland looked at, and it's the thrill robbery category. There truly was a little bit of desperation that they saw here. However, it definitely fit better in this category because more often than not, you saw this term senselessness to these crimes. And I did speak to Mark Safrik the other day, and he was hitting this home as well. He was saying, you know, even when a robbery isn't committed, they're still going in and there's this excessive violence and people are getting killed. There really does seem to be that component 
about the thrill of the kill for these individuals. So lots of excessive violence, basically beyond what is needed to commit the robbery. And you and I have seen that before. And we've talked about sexual assault cases where the perpetrator can be going above and beyond with the amount of violence that has nothing to do with how they've already overpowered the victim to commit the sexual assault. They might be continuing to punch that person in the face over and over again, or anything above and beyond what seems like they just need to do to commit that crime. And that's what they're seeing here as well. They see multiple weapons used. So you would guess like the majority of these crimes are committed with firearms. That's absolutely true. So these folks had multiple firearms and, or were going to multiple modes of death for people. And these folks are constantly on the move. They are crossing jurisdictions. It's really, really hard to predict what they're doing, why they're doing it and where they are, which is very, very difficult for law enforcement to one, start connecting dots because it might be happening in different jurisdictions or the victimology is different. They're just killing different people at different types of places. It's not just a string of robberies at banks. Uh, Mark Safrick said, you know, it might be a convenience store here and a diner here and a gas station there. It's just completely random. And that makes it hard for the cops to then intervene like we had with the anger revenge, because there's, again, no rhyme or reason. He said that suicide rate is very low in this category. The people either run as long as they can and they give up and get caught and eventually go to prison for this. So this is where we are going to focus on after you give us our first case study, because this is where we see the couples. The couples and females are only in the thrill robbery category. Well, then this is going to be an interesting discussion because I am a little confused. I see how the categories are broken down, which makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I'll defer to you since you did the deeper dive on this part of it. There's got to be gray area in between. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, as I got deeper and deeper into this case study, that we chose. There's just so many factors. There's bits and pieces from everything you just described, but well, and that'll be kind of fun. I I can like look at this after you talk about it and see where we would apply it. Yeah. I think that's going to be necessary. So of course, you know, who would be the most likely example to come up when you think about spree killers or couples that are on the run glamorization in American history, it's Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. So Bonnie and Clyde really epitomize so much of the category, the subcategory that you're talking about. And certainly the robbery thrill has a lot to do with it. But one of the things that's very clear about the research and especially the recent research, like there's been research for, you know, 60 years now, well, more than 60 years, but in recent discoveries of materials, actually most prominently in the last 15 years, there's been some other things come up that really show that Bonnie and Clyde were on a mission or Clyde was on a mission. And that gets spelled out in a lot of details during this. So we have to paint a picture of America at the time 
that these crimes occurred in the early 30s. The depression was occurring. Uh, jobs were very scarce. Up to one quarter of the entire population of the U.S. was out of work. So it was very much a depressed economy. Times were tough. Families were starving. There were massive soup lines. There was massive migration from the rural farming areas into the cities looking for work because unfortunately at the same time as the economic fallout there was a massive drought in the midwest and the midwest at that time prior to california becoming so much of uh, structured agriculture with the import of water this was before the water was being brought in to california so everything really depended on the breadbasket of the midwest which and this was the dust bowl right Exactly, exactly. And the Dust Bowl just displaced hundreds of thousands of people and drove many farmers and their families to the city areas looking for work. And there was no work. I have a funny story. My friend had a, it was her 30th birthday party. And so she was doing like a 30s themed party. And so everyone was like in their cool, like mobster gear or like, you know, just sort of at the tail end of flappers and stuff like that. And my husband and I show up dressed as dust bowlers. We just put on like overalls and rub dirt all over us. <laughs> That's great. I would have gone like as uh, I would have, I would have a good one have been like the Jodes in uh, the Grapes of Wrath. Like they're, they're, they're kind of like yeah. that covered in dirt. It was like, I put yeah. no effort into this, but you guys look so glam. <laughs> <laughs> Always wanting to stand out. Good for you. Good for you. So there's a term that got coined around this time, which is very sort of uh, important to this story. The term is public enemy. It's a term that was first widely used in the U.S. in the 1930s to describe individuals whose criminal activities were seen as extremely damaging to society, even though the phrase had really been used historically for centuries to describe Vikings, highwaymen, bandits, uh, outlaws, mobsters, pirates. A, a whole spectrum. These these were public enemies. The actions they were taking were hurting the public in a spectrum of ways. But in the 30s, it became really drilled down into, especially at the beginning, remember, on top of everything else, the Dust Bowl and Depression, there was also prohibition, which meant that the illegal activities that were profitable many times were centered on alcohol and illegal substances, which then made crime syndicates become even more powerful. So this attempt to put a template of morality onto individuals' substance use really backfired for the government in a really bad way. And the term public enemy really started to describe, at first, people that were breaking prohibition laws, but then it got changed once the FBI stepped in. So Loesch in 1933 coined the term, or not necessarily coined, as we said, it had been around, but further defined it as the purpose is to keep the publicity light shining on Chicago's most prominent, well-known, and notorious gangsters to the end that they may be under constant observation by law enforcing authorities and law-abiding citizens. So it's heavy handed. It's Jeez. really heavy handed. It's a little bit 1984 because what he's implying is we need you to tell on, we need you yeah. to snitch, right. um, which is not always the greatest thing. I mean, like certainly reporting criminal activity is important, but you know, turning neighbor on neighbor is never a good thing, but it 
further changed beyond what Loesch had intended when the FBI really sort of polished up the term public enemies, and they were wanted criminals and fugitives who were already charged with crimes. And those criminals that were very high profile would include people like John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, Machine Gun Kelly, Alvin Karpis, and Mar- Ma Barker. So, you know, they were like Makes suddenly sense. jacking up this term to mean something that was way more intense than what it had previously meant. What probably morphed into like the FBI's most wanted, really. Yes. Like yes. folks they were chasing after for crimes that had been committed already. So one of the things that happened about these spree crimes with Bonnie and Clyde also in a I guess for the betterment is that the feds realized, hey, we do not have a system in the U.S. for any kind of communication between local law enforcement agencies. And we need to make sure that the federal agencies can step in and help with that. Unfortunately, the head of the FBI then, J. Edgar Hoover, was not a great guy, clearly. We could do, I'm sure there are probably whole podcast series that are done on him and what he did to the country as far as uh, really trampling on civil rights. But maybe the the one thing that came from that that was good was the establishment of the need for intercommunication between law enforcement agencies. So just going over some basic Bonnie and Clyde facts, it was a two-year crime spree on their own and in conjunction with other members of a gang that they had formed that included Clyde's own brother. Um, Their crimes were spread across five states, but their travels of escape routes and hideouts covered a minimum of 11 known states. They were driving constantly, especially there was a turning point in their crime spree where they became almost like mythical Robin Hood characters because the newspaper coverage started portraying them as such. That made it harder for them to hide. They could no longer stay in hotels or stay in city propers. They were like living this sort of furtive life, living in the car, sleeping in the car, sleeping in empty campgrounds, that kind of thing. But sort of being like these criminal celebrities at the same time. Very much so. Their crimes included robbing banks, engaging in armed robberies, and really kind of leaving a trail of carnage of murder victims. And what you do see is a progression of more and more collateral damage with people that were not necessarily intended victims. And it does seem like as you listen to this story or go into the research that there was a point at which Clyde just sort of said, fuck it. And I mean, he literally did in in many of the recounts and the interviews with relatives that were alive up until the mid 90s that he just got desperate and always even from childhoods had sort of this idea of I'm going to do what I want to do. Not necessarily like conduct disorder, although he was he was engaging in criminal activities, but there was somewhat of a hopeless nihilistic edge to him that may very well have to do with the economic depression that was occurring at the time. His own family was one of those multi-children family. I think there were five siblings, and they had been displaced from their family farm and moved into the suburbs of Dallas into a very, very low-income area that they were forced to basically sleep in a tent for a long time as they got established. Well, and I think that Mm -hmm. that stage where you said he was basically like, fuck it. And then all in after that, anything goes sort of is really important to look at in the psychology of this, because when, you know, I primarily work as a cognitive behavioral therapist and when I'm working with folks 
in terms of problematic behaviors that they don't want to do anymore, we look at chain of events and there's always that last stage before you decide to do that thing is called the giving up stage. But my alternative term for that is the fuck it stage. You're just like, I'm done. I've already did this. So I'm just going to cross the bridge of no return. And that gives us some insight here. So I I love how you're framing that. And I want to be careful and make sure that our listeners understand that there is a positive connotation to that as well as a negative connotation. So clearly when we're talking about criminality, this is a, this is not a good thing when somebody is past the point of no return because they, they've basically gone to KFC and gotten their fuck it bucket and they're ready to go. But in terms of when in cognitive behavioral therapy, there is that point where things actually get done when a person has reached sort of the end of their rope of other coping skills that aren't working anymore. Yeah, it's like that rock bottom. And then they can start you climbing back up out of that pit. Right. I did not turn, I did not coin the term fuck it bucket. That is David Sedaris's <laughs> brother. Oh, okay. The rooster. He's known as the rooster. And he's I'm like, is that on the secret menu? Cause I've never seen it. <laughs> it should be. It should be. That would really increase their sales. Gangster movies became very popular during this time. Also, it was glamorizing crime because it was very escapist for the audiences that were experiencing the depression movies became one of the only really actually affordable forms of entertainment with large theaters and low prices, or at least moderate prices where people could go and watch films. And a lot of the like Edward G Robinson and other sort of crime Lords that were portrayed by actors in these movies, they were clearly psychopaths. They were not good people but it was glamorized because they were the ones that had money. They always had suits. They had the finery in life. So of course the audience is sort of like, well, I want to live that. I want to have that kind of luxury. And interestingly enough, another sort of big shift in the culture of the U S is that these movies were all generated during a time called pre code. There was no code as to what was allowed in a movie versus what wasn't. So there was actually a bit of nudity There are some very scandalous things that were done back in the the silent days. And this was really sort of the hammer gets dropped by the federal government going, no, 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 you're not going to be doing this anymore. And it instituted this uh, sort of board of censorship and rankings and ratings where they would say, no, you can't do this. You can't have blood portrayed on a scene. You can't, if someone uh, gets killed by violence, you can't see this particular part of the crime. You can see this part and then you can see afterwards, but you can't see in the middle, that sort of thing. So they were trying to kind of stem the flow of glamorization of crime that was portrayed in gangster movies. And then going back to Clyde, one of the things that was very clear in uh, a communique via letter to one of his family members is that he said, no man, but the undertaker will get me. And he did assert that he would kill himself rather than go back to prison. So that's really important because we're going to talk in a minute about how bad prison was for him. He was in prison uh, in Huntsville, Texas. Uh, That was a notoriously bad prison, even for the day it was known across the country as having some of the most brutal and unmonitored guards. And there were people that were actively, there were inmates that on a monthly basis were killing themselves or doing suicide by cop, suicide by guard, because they just couldn't take how much they were being physically uh, abused. Oh, awful. Right. So why were Bonnie and Clyde so successful? 
And one that's that's just always sort of an interesting thing. How could they have gotten so successful in their projects or their projects in their criminal <laughs> spree? How, and the projects. It, it does come back to one of the things I said earlier is that there was just no communication between law enforcement agencies. So they were going not only from state to state, they were going from county to county. And at that time, it was very clear. It's like, well, I work for a county. I don't go across the borderline into C County. And this just didn't happen. And there were no two-way radios at the time. So the idea of information getting communicated in an efficient manner, it really just did not exist. So one of the things that they did, which was very smart and very deadly, is they very early on hit up armories in small towns. And they were able to break into armories that allowed them access to the really cutting edge military grade weapons at the time. They weren't necessarily using sort of the cartoon Tommy gun machine guns that you see sometimes in movies, but they did have these automatic weapons that would shoot 24 rounds. And I'm talking deadly, deadly rounds very, very quickly. Yeah. For and them, they that just stole so unusual. many of them. But guess what the, the most important was the most important factor. Um, the fact that they were willing to sit in a Model T across 11 states, because I wouldn't even sit in my car across 11 states. <laughs> well, that's that's close, is that the Ford Motor Company, it wasn't a, a Model T. It had actually okay. gone up uh, a couple of levels from the Model T to where it was a V8 engine. So the V8 engine at that time was the most powerful combustion engine for an automobile. As far as I know, at least this right. is the way it was it was portrayed to me. So why is that such a big deal? Because all at the time, if you were going to join local law enforcement, not only did you have to buy your own weapon, you had to use your own transportation. And oh. so many of the time, these local law enforcement were using like their farm trucks that were being held together by bailing wire and spit, basically. So here's you've got this criminal who actually in the big picture was not as not particularly well organized, not even particularly lucky. He was just a really good driver and he had literally the fastest car on the road. Right. So come and, and catch me if you can. Right? right. So, you know, the reality of their life on the road as these crimes started piling up is pretty stark in its contrast to the myth that was developed around uh, Bonnie's partnership with Clyde. His full name was Clyde Champion Barrow. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was at his side and partners in over 100 felonies during the two-year period that they committed all these crimes. Now, she's often portrayed historically through the lens of Faye Dunaway's portrayal of her in the 1967 feature film Bonnie and Clyde that she starred in with Warren Beatty. While the movie did not diminish the violence of the crimes that they committed, there really was a glamorization by using these two incredibly attractive actors, really well-dressed, which actually matches up to the pictures that we have of Bonnie and Clyde. They were always very stylish, put together well. So one of the things that was done that was later found out is because they wanted people to report on them when they were seen, they had to jack up and push back against the romanticization that was happening in the media at the time. So the way that they did that after they found a camera with a roll of undeveloped film, they found these pictures of basically her and Clyde kind of playing with each other. She puts a big cigar in her mouth. She's got the sort of machine gun, the automatic rifle 
with her leg up on the fender of a car in a very, very unladylike pose, right. which was just shocking to the community. Oh, and wow. that was the way that they sort of changed the narrative. Law enforcement changed the narrative to like, oh, oh, this is a wanton, lascivious woman who's right. married to someone else. And she even still has her wedding ring on. And here she is. And clearly, if they are committing these crimes, they're sleeping together. Mm. So very, mm. very interesting. She just wasn't the cigar smoking, machine gun wielding killer depicted in newspapers, newsreels, and all the pulp magazines of the day. But she also eventually did pick up that automatic weapon and killed law enforcement officers. She was born and raised in Texas. She worked as a seamstress and a waitress during her teen years. She married very early a guy named Roy Thornton, who was already a career criminal. She got married right before the age of 16, and they never divorced. The relationship was sporadic because he was regularly gone to his, uh, due to his criminal activities and his multiple incarcerations. Her later discovered diaries revealed really sort of the life of a very lonely teenager that was very frustrated with the slow pace of life in a Texas suburb. Also, she was a really good writer. Very interesting. Some of her poetry and the way she describes her emotional experience at the time was actually quite impressive. Clyde. Interesting. uh, Yeah, I was not expecting that at all. Clyde Barrow was also a Texas native, and he had moved, as I said earlier, with his parents to a very, very low income part of West Dallas. He, I think that this is really important for a bit of the story coming up. He was short. He was only 5'7". He was very slender, and he was very boyish in his appearance. Almost, especially at his in his younger year, teen years, uh, androgynous in a way. Mm-hmm. And by the age of 17, he had already racked up a series of increasingly more serious crimes, but that would still be like something that would be a slap on the wrist, basically here. He started by reneging on a rental car fee, and then he and his brother got picked up for reselling stolen turkeys. And then they (laughs) moved on to stealing cars, to robbing stores and banks. And they just suddenly began began to amp up their crimes. Sure. Later, it comes out that he was just really tired of being poor. He was was done with it. They had been living in a campground for years with his father and and mother and his uh, sisters. He could not find work. So I think that this is very interesting and not letting him off the hook because there are plenty of people from low incomes that choose not to engage in criminal activities. But in this case, he definitely thought of this Mm. as the best option for him. So he met Bonnie at age 19. Well, she was 19. He was 21. She was at a friend's house taking care of her because the, the friend had broken her arm and needed someone to stay with her. Bonnie is described At this time, even though she had married pretty much someone who's a career criminal, Bonnie was described as being very kind and compassionate and caring and always willing to help out. She also had aspirations of wanting to be an actress. There were some sort of glamour photos of her from the late 20s, early 30s that she was trying to use to get out of this small town and get to New York to audition for Broadway and maybe become a performer. But who wasn't, you know, what woman wasn't wishing for that back then, I think, with such desperate times and just like getting out and doing something big and the popularity of Broadway and movies? I think that's a great perspective. I I, I think that that's a great perspective. And there's a real parallel between that and sort of the American Idol 
15 right. minutes of fame that, that we constantly promote even today. But sure. then it might've been more of a life or death issue because you think of it, it's the only way out for me to survive, right? Or a, a form of escapism to have this big Hollywood dream. Right, right. I think that's a great point. So Clyde, what did he do first? He guided this intense relationship with Bonnie. It's very, very intense, almost from the beginning. And unfortunately, he had already been caught uh, he had committed a couple of crimes before they met, and he gets caught for those and taken to what was known as the farm. And the farm was part of the Huntsville, Texas prison system. And it's reported to have been very, very bad. It was a work farm. And Bonnie smuggled him a weapon, which he used to escape. And he escaped successfully, but then he was recaptured. Here in the story is something that is really important that I think has a huge effect on who he is. He gets savagely and repeatedly raped by one of the other inmates at the prison. And this inmate was known for victimizing people that were smaller than him. So like mm -hmm. I was saying earlier, here's this young man who is very boyish looking, very slender, not really presenting as being able to take care of himself. However, what he is able to do is he's able to find a pipe and he beats the guy to death. Wow. And then a lifer, another inmate who knew that he was never getting out, insisted that he was the one who killed the assailant and it wasn't Clyde. Interesting. What's that about? Well, I don't know. Um, maybe Correctional psychologist, Dr. Scott. <laughs> I, you know, look, you, you do form relationships in prison. You form, it's, it's a different type of relationship than you would have on the outside. And there is sort of, you know, there is honor among thieves at some points, maybe not so much now as there used to be. I mean, I remember working in California state prison, working with former gang members that were maybe in their mid fifties and they would shake their heads and say, you know, the kids today, the gangsters don't have any rules. When I was in the gang, we had rules. It was no kids, no women. If you were going to take somebody out, it had to meet this, this, and this criteria. It had to go through five different levels of approval. Yeah. Now it's just, these guys are young guns and they're hot shots and they'll, they won't think at all. And also he, one of his, and this guy that I was talking to, his perspective on it also was just the amount of drugs that are being used now, as opposed mm. to what was allowed to be used when he was active. So, yeah. So this could have been a, basically a lifer saying, well, at least you have a chance you're going to get out. I'll just take the rap for you. I, I think that might've been it. Well, we probably won't know unless there's somebody that has managed to track down more information because this is a myth of American legend. It really is. Sure. It's a very notorious three crime couple and a lot has been written about them. There are historians that focus just specifically on their crimes and have updated their books as more information has come out. One of the things that was really helpful in understanding this is that Clyde's brother's wife, Blanche, was part of the gang as well. And she was okay. one of the ones that's portrayed in the movie very, very well. During one of their crimes, a window is shattered by a bullet and she is blinded in one eye by glass shards. So she's taken into custody. She is basically almost 
tortured by law enforcement at the time because she had been involved in a couple of murders as well, or at least been been there. So, of course, law enforcement is like, these are cop killers. Uh-huh. You know, we need to find out everything we can. She gives as much information as she's got, which is not a lot. And then she's remanded to state prison and she starts writing a journal. Well, those journal pages were only found a few years ago as oh. her sister was cleaning out a house or that was a, probably a niece. So an elderly niece was cleaning out her mom's house and she oh was able goodness. to get this information and, and say basically that she gave a great description of Clyde as being incredibly driven with a goal. And his goal was to retaliate against law enforcement and prison guards for the way he had been treated. Mm, Okay. Now, another thing that also contributed to his anger is that after he had done his first prison stint, he got out by this time, his father had opened a filling station and he was trying to go clean. He was apparently or allegedly, he was trying to go clean. He was trying to go legit. And every time there was a crime anywhere in the area, law enforcement would shake him down. So his dad was like, hey, we can't do this. Like the cops keep coming. So you got to look for work somewhere else. Clyde is like, I totally get it. I'm going to go look work somewhere else. Every time he got a job, the cops would come to the site and the people that had hired him would go, we can't have this. You can't live here. So once again, law enforcement in thinking that this is going to be their go-to to try and pin something on this career criminal, they're making their situation worse down the line because Clyde really becomes a man on a mission with a real grudge against law enforcement and authority. Now, one of the things that did happen as he was getting out of prison that second time is that he was so desperate to get out rather than kill himself that he took a hatchet and he cut off two of his own toes, which would have done two things. It would have made him unable physically to do the physical labor that was required there at that particular prison facility. Mm -hmm. And it would also get him off site to be seen by a medical doctor and then possibly transferred to a medical facility. Now, what was going on at the same time was that he had been having a conversation with his mom who, because of his age, she had gone directly to the local judge and said, yes, he's done some bad things, but you got to let him out. He's got a chance. He's from a good family. Look at us. We're a good family. And the judge signed the orders. So he cuts off two of his toes about two weeks before his mom was going to get the the doors open for him anyway. Oh, my gosh. Right. So a lot of people don't realize that all during this upcoming crime spree, he was limping very significantly. Like that's, you know, why he had to be a good driver is because he certainly wasn't going to be able to run very well from anybody, although he, he they did do some physical runs down the line there at the end. So in 1933, Clyde and Bonnie joined Clyde's brother, Buck and Blanche at a hideout in, I think it's, was was it Joplin? Yeah, Joplin, Missouri. And there's some really conflicting information about what goes on here. So by some accounts in one of the documentaries is like, oh, they realize they have to hold up someplace. So they rent this apartment and they just basically stay there they're laying low but the neighbors get suspicious thinking it's bootleggers so they call the police well then another report said no the reason they were convinced it was bootleggers is because they were drunk all the time 
coming and going, slamming doors, getting into huge fistfights because basically they're on the run and it's just these four people and they're drawing all this attention to themselves when they really should be keeping a very low profile. So unfortunately, what happens is that a bunch of cops show up thinking that they're going to be investigating whether or not there's bootlegging going on. Clyde thinks they're on to us and they basically just mow down all of the cops. Oh. They turn the corner as far as being all in. Like there is yep. no turning back, even though they had already killed some innocent people. They killed an elderly shopkeeper that Clyde knew just to be able to get uh, a handful of money and take off. Interestingly enough, they weren't great criminals at all. They did not plan their crimes well. They didn't hit big banks. Many times they'd be robbing stores and getting off with only $20, $40, $100, which is why they had to always keep having these small crimes perpetrated because they never got enough capital where they could disappear or lay low long enough to get off the radar. Yeah, that, you know, that... The fact that it's not planned is putting me with like one foot in the robbery thrill category because that does seem to be a piece of it. I mean, I I get his grievance and his mindset. It doesn't feel like enough of, say, like an ideology, perhaps. Right. No, I think that's that's a great observation. And so now from here on out, their life is just a series of bank store robberies And really, sadly, casual murders of shopkeepers or car owners because they would just keep either jacking cars if they needed to, always going for a V8 when they could, or at least switching out license plates as they're moving from state to state so that they are not like showing up with an out-of-state license plate that would attract attention. So interestingly enough, they engaged in a lot of kidnapping and abductions. And many times there were, they released their uh, hostages and actually gave them money to return home. But despite these very small generosities, the gang had no inhibitions about killing anybody that was a potential obstacle to them, whether it was a police officer or maybe even an individual that happened to be in a very wrong place at a very wrong time. Mm -hmm. So despite the titillating romantic and lascivious portrayal of their crimes, the brutality of their murders really shifted public opinion away from them being a sort of Robin Hood status. So what are we seeing? Okay, I mean, I, I could have just done a list down the crimes. Basically, you, you get the picture. They're yeah. just all over the place. They're driven by this intense relationship that they have. You, if you read the letters going back and forth, they are really enamored with each other. And Bonnie really expresses a lot of concern. And there's even one letter she sends to him about a third of the way into their time together while he's in prison, but before things have really gone south. And she says, I, I don't want you to be a thug. I want us to have a life together. I think Mm -hmm. that we'd be really good. We can do something. We don't have to live this life. And he wrote back sort of saying that he kind of agreed with her, but you know, once he got out, they fall back into this pattern again. Yeah. Maybe he was more of the realistic one of like, but what choice do we have? You know, well, everybody really, is so poor. Right. And this is kind of a, this is a thrill. Like we are different than the rest of America who's just suffering and hungry. 
Yeah, I think that all of those factors, I mean, it gets confusing for me looking at all these categories, like kind of tapping my finger going, well, where are they going to fall? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, that would, I would love, I mean, I'm sure Catherine Ramsland has, has completely profiled this out, but I do think that it's very interesting that we look at, they had a need for money. They both came from poor parents, but he actually came from a, a successful farmer that was successful for a while before it all fell apart. She came from absolutely no money. She came from a family that was described over and over in the literature as dirt poor, still uh, problematic in that they were both really impacted by living in this culture where there really wasn't a lot of hope. The president was saying at the time, it's going to get better. Newspaper headlines uh, would be saying, it's awful, it's awful, it's awful, but, you know, great days are coming. It's all Mm going to shift around. And, you know, when you send mixed messages to a large population, that's going to result in people being jaded, completely yeah. jaded and nihilistic and not trusting that things are ever going to get better. So that right. I would think that that contributed to it as well. So Clyde's sister in later interviews said, you know, there was a lot of love in their family, but, and, and I want to give her respect because it was, she seemed like a very sweet lady. I was looking at this interview from 1996 that was very interesting. But, you know, Clyde and his brother were already experimenting with crime at a very early age. So in that light, I'm looking just sort of behaviorally. And one of the things I notice is that he is disinhibited already mm-hmm. from playing by the rules. So he's he's doing things as a teenager that are really on the edge of criminality. They're beyond sort of what we'd call oppositional defiant or conduct disorder. He hasn't really hurt anybody yet, but you can see an escalation pattern. So so he's disinhibited. He seems to have increasingly more poor impulse control, especially after his experience in prison. Sure. So one inmate who later wrote about his experience of being in prison with Clyde was being brutalized by the guards. He was just being beaten, beaten, beaten to the point where he knew that if he got punched a couple of more times, he was going to die. So he's laying on the floor bleeding and his head turns and he sees Clyde, this skinny little short kid in the corner of the room with this look in his face and in a in a attack posture, like he was going to tra- attack this guard, this guard that was reported to be like six foot four, built like mm-hmm. a linebacker. And the guy was like thinking in his head as he's being beaten, oh, my God, this kid's going to get himself killed. Don't do it. Don't do it. But interesting, what he did was he got the attention of the guard and the guard turned around and got distracted and said, what, you want some of this kid? I'll you know wipe the floor with you. Although the guard did not take any action against Clyde in that moment, the inmate who wrote this said, he saved my life. Right, because the guard what he did, stopped he, the beating. Right, he broke his concentration. And mm-hmm. if, if he had continued, I would have been killed. So exposure to that kind of brutality is another factor, as well as the vicious sexual assault that he himself had experienced that led to his kind of having a fuck it moment of like, well, I'm just going to kill this guy. I'm going to, I'm going to kill this perpetrator. The exposure to violence and desensitization that had to follow that. Right. So, I mean, I think another thing is the willingness that he had to harm himself, you know, with like my only way out of here is to basically 
maim my feet to commit mayhem against myself. That's interesting because, you know, on a surface level, a lot of people would go, oh, he just didn't want to work. You don't understand how the prison system was at that time. It was brutal, brutal chain gangs, no air conditioning. This is Huntsville, Texas. It was not good at all. And there was no standard for what prisons were supposed to be like at that time. Right. A lot of criminality. I mean, as there is today, a lot of criminal activities going on within the prison. But really, according to John Neal Phillips, who's one of the primary biographers of uh, Bonnie and Clyde, he said that his life goal was really not to gain fame or fortune from robbing banks but clearly just to seek revenge against the Texas prison system for the abuses that he suffered while serving time there. And that's a quote from him. Now, also, there, it was known because it was he was said this in letters that when he got out of prison the second time, his main goal was to put together a gang that would then go back to the prison and kill the guards. See, that would have, to me, would have pushed me back over to mission. Like if that yes. was just the mission yes. and then that was it. Or and what if you can't do that? So if you can't fulfill right. the mission in that way, where are you going to affect or displace all yes. of that rage, right? Right. Because it doesn't make any sense. You know, this cop that comes to bust you for what they think is like, you know, something prohibition related and you just mow them down. That has nothing to do with the Texas prison system. So it... It, yeah, it, it's completely displaced, but that I'm glad you said that because that makes sense. There was a plan at one time and, you know, it, it's all horrible. Thank goodness that didn't come to fruition. But to me, that would have been very mission oriented. So add to that this next bit of information from author Jeff Gwynn. He wrote a book in 2009 called Go Down Together, the true untold story of Bonnie and Clyde. He asserts that almost from the beginning of their criminal spree, the two just absolutely accepted the inevitability of violent deaths. So look, if that's true, this piques me clinically. And I mean, it's accepting mm. a brief, bleak future of violence and eventual death. It's going to further disinhibit any moral objection to committing the crimes. Sure. So there's no what we call future orientation. There's no planning for the future. There's no thinking anymore about consequences. Like I've already accepted how it's going to be. There's going to be mm -hmm. collateral damage. And we accept that this is our life and our existence. I mean, interestingly enough, that's one of the things when you're assessing for someone who may be potentially of harm to themselves, you always want to look at, do they have a future orientation? Do they have something to live for? Do they have hope in their life? Is there something that motivates them, inspires them? to get past this period. Clearly, according to what Jeff Gwynn is saying, none of that existed at this point for them. Well, but also we haven't even talked about brain development. I mean, we're talking about people in their late teens, their early twenties. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the future orientation part, it sounds like towards the end when she was like, Hey, maybe we could have a life together. She was at least starting to think that way. And he, do you see like how he just sort of shut that down and got back onto this path that you're talking about right now? Right. Now, another interesting thing, look, I do not, although there is a lot written on the web about this, 
I don't feel comfortable necessarily making any kind of hardcore conjecture, but I do think it's interesting to bring up is that there has been recently a lot of sort of turning the lens, looking back at Clyde and wondering if his own sexuality played a role in this, that he might have been either asexual or bisexual or even had more homosexual gay tendencies mm-hmm. than we know of. And I, th- I want to be really careful about that because it, it really gets into this gendered conversation about masculine ideology and what a, a, a straight male is supposed to look like. And you right. know, there's plenty of straight men that have more soft, almost feminine qualities, but are a hundred percent straight. But mm-hmm. we just don't, we don't, we don't, a lot of times we don't take time to really process that, that, gender identity and gender rights, gender expression and sexual expression. It's an incredible three-dimensional hologram where you can be anywhere in that universe. And certainly we're only beginning now to understand it here in 2021. There was no conversation of that in the thirties. It's like, not at all. I mean, do we even know if they had a sexual relationship? We don't really, you don't really, it's a, it's a connection. It's an intense connection. And even in 67, when they were making the movie with Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, they portray it with him as being very, you know, very dapper and charming, but he is not particularly going, he's not expressing a lot of sexual interest in him. And about mm-hmm. a third of the way into the movie, she basically is sexually very, very aggressive with him. Mm-hmm. And alleged, uh, supposedly that's based on, some information that was gathered by historians. So there may be something to that, but is it integral to understanding him right now? I don't know. I think it's interesting. I do would say if I was going to conjecture anything, if this is somebody who feels other and has a different experience of his sexuality, that there is no room to discuss to basically even process. And then you get raped violently and repeatedly by an assailant in prison, I would think that that would be a real motivator for that anger and rage to come out. Sure. You know, not being protected by the system, who know if the guards were allowing it. I mean, there's, that's a lot of conjecture, but I do think it's interesting. Right. I mean, there's enough already for that, but then if, if that happened to be a layer underneath at all. Right. So one of the other theories that's very interesting and, you know, I'm a, I have a love-hate relationship with psychology today um, because (laughs) it's, you know, a lot of people, I think it's an interesting magazine to read, especially for lay people. Many of the articles, when, when, when you submit something to psychology today, you're encouraged to try and straddle two worlds, make it interesting to people that are mental health professionals and also make it interesting to lay people. And I found an article where someone was asserting that Bonnie was hybristophilic which I don't agree with at all. Nah, I don't see I don't, it. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think it fits that at all. And for anyone who's out there that doesn't know that term, hybristophilia is a paraphilia where a female uh, individual is enamored with incarcerated men or women and solely pursues relationships and has passions for individuals that are incarcerated. And then there's a whole sort of psychological profile behind that. But this just doesn't seem to fit at all. So I was, I was. No, and she's engaging in the crimes herself too. So yeah, 
That's usually not the case, especially with the cases that we've covered that touch into this area a little bit. So, you know, I think that wrapping it up without, you know, sort of just listing the crimes, I mean, that that sort of almost seems secondary. It was a number of crimes, a number of murders that increased over this two-year period with an ever since of growing desperation. I think going back to the idea foundationally that each of them came from economically depressed backgrounds for different reasons, that Bonnie saw herself as having potential to do something else that got her out of this dry Texas town where she was never going to have a future. She was retreating into these fantasies of being a poet, a writer, a performer on Broadway. And even her mom was quoted as being really concerned about her ever-growing passion for Clyde and escapism in her relationship with him. So not Very the dynamic. greatest combination, you know, it's not, and it doesn't seem to be like some of the criminal pairs that we see in other situations where there's a really a clearly dominant personality versus a more passive personality. One of the things that is described about Clyde on a consistent basis is that he is described as being a control freak, that he was the planner, although clearly in some ways not a very good planner. He's only like 21, 22 years old. So how much can he actually know? But very much in control, told people how things were going to be and dominated his brother in that way, who was older than him. And there's no way that a spree killing couple or gang would get away with it for two years today. I mean, we talked about all the obstacles for law enforcement back then. And, you know, I don't know what the other time lengths were, but I know that with the study that I've been focusing on, they said that, you know, around 20% of the, the cases that they looked at, the spree lasts two hours or less. So oh, to think of something two years, you know, that's just, it's such an interesting snapshot for the 1930s and what it's, was happening. There was another thing too, you know, one of the, I, I would encourage people to go watch the free stuff on YouTube. One of the prominent documentaries is actually from either A&E or the History Channel from 1996. And on one hand, it was a great springboard for me when I was starting to gather information. On another hand, it's like, wow, documentaries have come a long way <laughs> since this being done for television. It's got this sort of guy who's talking like this. And he, he sounds like he's been smoking two packs of Marlboros for about 30 years, but he's almost sing-songy and smarmy in the way he's describing oh, sure. their crimes. And then there's like this kind of rinky-dink 1930s, slightly country music playing in the background. And I mean, the, some of the interviews that they had were amazing because that was in the early 90s. Yeah. And many of these people were still alive. So they were still able to interview family members and get some really good interview material. But I was like, oh, God, this guy's voice is annoying <laughs> the fuck out of me. Well, it's like all <clears throat> like true crime shows back then. You know, your city confidentials and oh, city <laughs> things confidential. like that. I did love that one. I mean, yeah. I know, I know. But that, like you said, that swarmy, like way in which they're talking about it. I totally picture that. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Certainly a dynamic couple with a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. One more point. I'm so sorry. This was something about that documentary that kind of pissed me off is that, 
And this, because of this is an older documentary, one of the things that they kept saying was how incompetent the police were. And they kept using the term incompetent, but then would say, oh, well, there's no way for them to communicate. There's no way for this. And then they have to drive their own trucks, they have to buy their own ammo, they have to buy their own guns. And I was going, well, why are you calling them incompetent? It's a broken, inefficient, undeveloped It's a resource system. issue. <laughs> right. Like, don't call them incompetent because... The way they caught them was that one member of their gang, a younger guy who basically they took under their wing almost as like a little brother. Mm -hmm. I was almost like a, a sort of a mentor rebel without a cause type relationship, like almost like a Salminio type character. And this kid came from basically one day he had no shoes and no food to the next day wearing a three piece suit and having an automatic weapon in his hand because he was hanging with them. Yep. But he made a deal with law enforcement, he got his family in on it to lure basically Bonnie and Clyde to a certain area of Louisiana. And the police set up like a really good sting on the one road into town. They put that the old man's truck up and like kind of put this fake obstacle. So as they slowed down, well, I will say this. They didn't even make any attempt to take them into custody. They, they mowed them down. And the, the crime scene photos are actually quite shocking. They're all over the web. But she was hit by bullets so many times that her body basically was sort of in pieces. Yeah. That yeah. had to be sort of scooped together to put on a, a, a gurney. Do you know where the Bonnie and Clyde death car is? It is at the Reagan Library right now, isn't it? Isn't it in a traveling exhibition? It has been at, and it's supposed to be here until 2022, but it's at Whiskey Pete's Casino at Stateline. What? Yes. <laughs> so if you guys are driving to CrimeCon from LA to Vegas next year, you can stop at Whiskey Pete's and that's where the death car is. Wow. I, okay. It's like this rinky dink casino at the border between California and Nevada. And it's like got one casino on one side and one on the other side and then it's like what another half hour to vegas from there and isn't there like a roller coaster that kind yep. of goes above the freeway and stuff like that yeah. yeah yeah so i don't know might have to stop i might have to yeah <laughs> the reagan library sounded so regal compared to whiskey beans well the reagan library i you know not for many reasons not a particularly favorite president of mine but it is an amazing, amazing presidential library here in Simi Valley, which is in Southern California. And they have the Air Force One and Air Force Two built into the side of the mountain in a huge, like, sort of glass den museum aviation thing and a bunch of different really great exhibits. And then there's also space where other exhibits come through. So there was like a Disney costume exhibit several oh, years ago, right. like, well, I'll, I'll drive up to that asshole's <laughs> library and I'll make the trek for Disney. I'll make the trek. So <laughs> I think there's, I thought there was some kind of true crime thing that was going in there. Um, there's some other ex mm. exhibit coming through soon. So Ooh, anyway, check on that. I want to see that. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about anchor. First off it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. 
Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. I was able to find actually a pretty recent research article, a 2019 study published in the Journal of Criminal Psychology that compared, what did I call it before? Oh, rapid sequence homicide offenders. They use that terminology, basically spree killers and serial murders. So they, it, it was the only one, and it's only a couple of years old that I was able to find that actually took these two different groups and sort of compared them against each other. I just thought it was interesting that they found that they are similar in more ways than not in the sense that they often kill their victims using a singular method. They have limited mobility, kill a number of victims, both known to them and stranger to them, and are both supremely motivated by what they call domestic anger. Um, But it mirrors the study that I've been talking about in the majority of them are looking at this anger revenge category. So like I said, I didn't expect to find much before Safrik and Ramsland's analysis because it just wasn't defined really in a way. And sounds like people just sort of swept it in with serial murder or mass murder, hence the reason for them deciding to do this. But to go a little bit more depth into this, Additionally, Ramsland says in describing spree murders, although some spree killers do kill randomly, they usually have a mission or a goal. They're often angry at a group of people or at an organization. The earliest acts, like the first shootings, those can assist with tracking them, but then things can kind of get off course. So I'm thinking back to Bonnie and Clyde with this, and you know, they may have had their mission which sort of sent them on perhaps some of those first few killings, but then it gets out of hand down the line. So I don't know if this would work or this would apply to them. I'm still going to go ahead and say just with the research and the statistics that we have here that I'm going to put them in the category of this thrill robbery. And with this category specifically, so And in my conversation with Safrik, this is what we really focused on because I told him that my interest was in the couples. So there were 78 total cases that they looked at here and 33 were teams. The majority of those were duos, but there were some that were more than two people, sort of these modern day gangs, but 12 had female counterparts. So of the 33 teams, 12 of them had females, which there were zero females in any of the other categories. And in this category specifically, no females were acting alone. So the loan operators were all male and there were also no female, female teams. And the couples were all romantically linked. So there wasn't any where they were a man and a woman and they were just friends. There was always a romantic link. I find it interesting that there were no female, female teams because I always think, you know, Thelma and Louise, we kind of throw that out, which I went back and watched and it's not like it's a spree killing (laughs) rampage that they're going on. Yeah, it's more impulsive. Yeah, and I don't know, but it did make me think like, Scott, would you just flee to Mexico with me? Because let's be real. I mean, I'm I'm the Louise in this situation. I'd be the one that killed some guy I because he was hurting you. you right now. I will pack a bag and leave my husband and let's go. <laughs> it's a great movie. I mean, there's also like 
prime Brad Pitt and Michael Madsen. I'm so hot for Michael Madsen at that stage, like Thelma and Louise, Reservoir Dogs. He's he just does it for me. So and who plays and the cop? Uh, Harvey Keitel. Oh, Harvey Keitel! It's so great. He goes in that one scene where he walks in, expecting to see like basically a meth trailer, and he yeah. sees this perfect, Immaculate. beautifully kept house. You know, the coffee cup is washed and dried, sitting at the side of the sink. You know, you can see his internal process as he figures out, like, wait, this is not what everybody is saying. This person is. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's very good. And his his empathy is really comes through. However, I got sidetracked with another movie. Okay, so <laughs> the the part of the thrill of the robbery is, again, that excessive violence where they're killing when they don't have to. However, it does start off, at least at the beginning and probably throughout where financial gain is truly the motive here. But Mark and I had this conversation about the male is almost all well, he said always, but you know, we're talking about almost always a dominant personality here. He's who's in charge, he's calling the shots. But we also said, you know, that shouldn't be surprising that there is a dominant personality because we see that with all types, especially violent crime, where there are two people working in concert together. Because I mean, really, you can't have like two type A psychopaths planning something. It's just nothing's ever going to get done because they're one of them's going to want to exactly. be on the shots. You're going to so, be the type A psychopath, and I will just be your <laughs> passive partner. <laughs> but then I'll have my breakdown, and like the roles will reverse. You'll be like, "Get your ass in the car, Shiloh." Oh yeah. But yeah, it, it would never come to fruition. There, there has to be, and I, I don't want to use the term mastermind because I don't think that's what it is. But it's the person sort of leading the charge in this situation. Maybe the one that can think a little bit more clearly when the shit hits the fan. Maybe they have the plan. It's usually their mission if it's mission driven or it's their anger or revenge that's driving the behavior. And then they're roping in this other person with them. And oftentimes when we see it with these duos that include a female, it's a romantic partner, it's the girlfriend. And these go on the robbery thrill cases go on longer than the others. It's over periods of weeks and months. The victimology is very random. Like I said before, they span different jurisdictions, counties, state lines, all of that. But I, I went through the book and I looked at all the cases that had women involved. And there, was, there wasn't a lot of rhyme or reason necessarily when you start breaking it down that far, but just all sorts of elements to these crimes. I mean, just such a wide variety. There were partners that engaged in robbery and thrill where there was also sexual assaults happening to victims. There were white supremacist duos that were basically on these hate crime sprees. Sometimes there was a lot of group mentality when it was part of, you know, sort of these gangs or posses where there were three or more people and one or two females. That was very rare case. That was like one or two sprinkled in there. And sometimes a girlfriend is just the one that has the means, like she's got the car. So guess what? <laughs> We're going to go rob this bank. And it's sort of off and running from there. So it is still very loosey goosey. There's not a lot of planning to it. But I think it's interesting how this is and, and probably hearkening back to Bonnie and Clyde and the glamorization of it back then, but how it's played up so much in movies 
and the the piece that draws you in right is going to be the humanity the the couple why would a couple do this but there's the love piece too anyway i i wanted to talk about a more current uh case study this just happened in may of this year wow and this the, yeah this is the crime spree of adrian simpson she's a 33 year old female and tyler terry he's a 26 year old male so Adrian and Tyler had been seeing each other for about three years, despite the fact that they were in other relationships. Adrian was married to um, another man, and then it, then Tyler was involved in a relationship with a man who presented as female online. I'll talk about that a little bit more. We get some information from his friends. But essentially, this starts May 2nd in York, South Carolina. They murder Tyler's partner, Thomas Harden. So like I said, he identified as a woman online, mostly friends confirmed that he still went by Thomas. He didn't have a preferred pronoun, but if you look up pictures, he's dressed as a woman. And then later that same day, they allegedly murder Adrian's husband, Eugene Simpson in Chester County, South Carolina, and then hide his body his body ends up, he ends up being missing for a while. And I'm saying allegedly because this is still fresh. This is still going through the court system. And then later that same day, we're still talking about May 2nd, they're at a Taco Bell and they shoot into a car and the victim does not die, but has life-threatening injuries. And then a second man is also shot in the vicinity. So they go on to very quickly evolve from killing their partners to people that they know to random people at a Taco Bell. And then later that day, they commit a home invasion robbery, shooting at the victims. One dies, one flees, but survives. So this is a lot. They are definitely all in at this point. So a little less than two weeks later on May 15th, they go on another shooting spree. They shoot at a man 10 times who's sitting in his car. And then they're now charged with shooting at a husband and a wife who were sitting in their car. And this was in St. Louis, Missouri now, St. Louis County, Missouri. They're driving around about 10 p.m. They shoot into this car with this couple and the wife, Barbara Goodkin, she was killed her husband survives because he has his cell phone in his shirt pocket, and that took the impact of the round instead of hitting him in the chest. He's injured, but he's able to drive them both to the hospital. Unfortunately, his wife dies from her injuries. And then that same night, nearly an hour and a half later, they're driving along in a parking lot, and they come along Dr. Sergei Zakharev, who's walking to his car, and they kill and rob him. And he was a very talented spine surgeon and anesthesiologist who had immigrated from Belarus to do his schooling and his practice here in the United States. Two days later, May 17th, the police track them down and the chase is on at this point. It's over 100 miles per hour. Adrian is behind the wheel. She's driving. And during the pursuit, Tyler is leaning out the window, shooting back at police. He strikes three other vehicles. Adrian ends up crashing the car. She's arrested immediately. Tyler runs into the woods and was on the run for a week. Huge manhunt. 
I mean, federal agencies, hundreds of law enforcement personnel were involved. Chester County, they kept in constant communication with the community through Twitter, fear, really just fearing more violence. Like this is who we're looking for. This is who to be out on the, be on the lookout for. We're doing everything. We have all these resources, but it was a really scary time for residents. And Chester County Sheriff Max Dorsey says about the couple, they were extremely dangerous. They became even more dangerous after the initial murder. That danger increased because they no longer had anything to lose. I believe that's what led them to not having a concern for anyone's well-being after that. Isn't that interesting? Because that feels like what we were just talking about. Yeah. So they... It, he does, Tyler ends up getting caught. They, through their crime spree, drove more than a thousand miles across multiple states, chalking up dozens of charges that included the four homicide charges in South Carolina and Missouri. And they also wounded three men in separate shootings, riddling multiple vehicles with bullets. Investigators are being a little tight-lipped about this, but they're also trying to tie them to a fifth sling in Tennessee. I'm not sure where that falls on the timeline, but essentially Adrian is cooperating with the cops and giving them details. That's how they actually found her husband because she told them where his body was. She said they both had guns, shot her husband in the head before disposing of his body, and then she provided them the location. So the the unsolved murder of the man in Memphis from the 17th would fit. Oh, it, so he was found on the 17th, even though we don't know in the timeline where his, when he was killed, but police are still looking into that with the multiple jurisdictions. So a year ago, the, just a little background history, it's on record that Tyler had a warrant out for his arrest for beating Adrian. There was a domestic violence report taken in her mugshots after they were arrested after the chase. She has black eyes, but people were sort of speculating. Does that mean that he was violent with her along this crime spree? But that could have been from the car accident. So like that, you know, there's speculation, but I guess it'll all come out later how much of a dominant personality he was in this and what her part was. But it sounds like she had quite a bit of culpability when she's admitting to both going to where her husband is and them both having guns. The Chester County Sheriff went on to say, I can't pinpoint one motive that kind of sews all this up in one big box. It appears that they were opportunists. They reacted violently and in the worst kind of way to achieve their goals that they had at any given time. So this I was happens. Not, I don't remember this. <laughs> I, I don't remember this at all. This is crazy. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, so this is, this still happens. This isn't just in the 1930s. And, but I think it's rare to see a couple in this modern day and age, you know, really going a couple of weeks. Um, but it really seemed to be too big, two days but multiple locations on all of those days. So it really fits the bill for spree. Um, even though you might say, okay, there's kind of this weird two week cooling off period in between. It definitely fits enough. So the other media depictions out there, you know, of course it comes to mind for me is natural born killers. Uh, that of, film of was, of course, that's going to be the biggest uh, one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, 
1994, um, an Oliver Stone film. I think originally the screenplay was written by Quentin Tarantino, hence the incredible violence <laughs> that was in this film, but stars Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis. And they it's really the story of these two victims of very traumatic childhoods who become lovers and then spree killers. And it's very, a lot of the way that the, the film is shot is how it's grotesquely glorified by the media at the time. And they're sort of basking in this celebrity aspect to it. Which clearly some people were not getting the intention of that being the message that was supposed to be delivered because it inspired copycats, right? Yeah, it did. I mean, I think saying copycat is, you know, Sounds kind of cool, but really it inspired crimes or inspired violence in the late 90s. There's, you can read about crime after crime that uh, people were trying to be this duo. It, it's been confirmed in several different resources that even the Columbine killers were fans of natural born killers. Uh, prior to the massacre, they would use the initials NBK as kind of their code for the incident that was going to happen. So, wow. you know, it, it, it prevails throughout kind of this lore of this incredibly violent film and these two people acting out because they have been wronged or have been exposed to this trauma. So with that, that's three killers. We're all, everybody is now all caught up on the totality of the research that's out there. <laughs> yeah, there, isn't that fascinating? There's really very little out there. Although I think that uh, Safarik and Ramsland have done really a great job in establishing these categories and looking at what information has existed and even like doing what we love when researchers will just actually go the extra mile and, yeah. and gather as many cases. So that's something that I think, unfortunately, you know, we are in a time with a lot of division within our political discourse that is leading people to these type of actions. And, you know, the spree killing, I wonder, like just off the top of my head, we don't even have time really to go into it, but I'm thinking about the Vegas shooter during the, mm -hmm. the concert that just seems there the the planning of it was planning to get as many people as he could it was a mass event you know and he had it was you know there was planning involved oh the, sure the location the number of weapons all that stuff but the just the also planning and impulsivity and disinhibition at the same time i just i love that that researchers are trying to parse this out so that they can look at what are the factors that contribute to this right and and that's that's an interesting case because it's textbook mass killing, but we have so little background on him or information on him. There yeah. was no manifesto left. Nope. There was not a trail of a lot. And I, I've been to a training where someone has talked about this case and they also picked um, Chris Mahandi's brain about it when we were in Austin a couple months ago and it will be a conversation for a later time, but I think it's really interesting. And that that's why that one bothers us so much, because we just don't know. We don't have answers. Right, right. But I really want to thank Mark Safarik and Catherine Ramslin for their research and want to thank Mark for his time to speak with me and, of course, for his service to the FBI. I'm going to have all of his book and website information in the show notes. Um, we are still working on our website. I know we talked about that last time. So all of our resources shall be up soon. 
where you can find them much more easily. But that's all we have for you. Please join us at our Get Vocal this Saturday, 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And we'll have something fun and casual and interesting to chat about. I can't wait. Yeah, our Get Vocals seem to be increasing every week. We get more yeah. of an audience and, you know, we're we're able to do because we don't do a lot of interviews here on the show, what is really exactly. great is to be able to interact with people. And if anybody wants to see me looking my absolute worst, then please go to <laughs> YouTube or to Facebook and watch last week's show well, where why? because I lost my regular contacts and I had to wear like the single vision contacts, which means I had to wear like the big Bugs Bunny glasses and I couldn't read the computer. And I just looked like a demented <laughs> man. <laughs> In a justice in, in a super friends t-shirt. I mean, it's just like the weirdest thing. Oh, and we, I love we had, those glasses. We had wonderful, wonderful guests. And yeah, uh, you know, did. we're always we always love to be able to interact with our listeners and have these sort of spontaneous, in-depth conversations that you never know where they're gonna go. So please join us on Get Vocal. Yes. And with that, please join us next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.